Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another surgical palliative care edition of Behind the Knife. My name is Red Hoffman, and I am an acute care surgeon at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, and one of about 90 surgeons currently board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. I am the founder and host of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast and the co-founder of the recently launched Surgical Palliative Care Society. Once again, my co-hosts today are Dr. Fabian Johnston and Dr. Amanda Stasny. Fabian, can you just remind us a little bit about yourself? Well, hi, everyone. Um, uh, So I am the uh, Chief of Gastrointestinal Surgical Oncology at Johns Hopkins. I am also uh, the Program Director of the Complex General Surgical Oncology Fellowship. I am RO1-funded to... uh, address uh, palliative care disparities using implementation science-based approaches. And so I live this, I uh, practice this, so I'm not board certified. I tell everybody I am a groupie. Uh, And so I'm very excited to be here with you guys today. Thanks so much for being here today, Fabian. I'm really excited to pick your brain. And Amanda, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm Amanda Stastny. I'm a PGY2 at the Mountain Area Health Education Center General Surgery Residency here in Asheville, North Carolina. And I'm just super happy to be here again as well and happy to talk to you again, Dr. Johnson. Thanks for being here today, Amanda. So today we're going to take advantage of Fabian's experience as a surgical oncologist whose clinical practice and research are focused on the implementation of patient-centered models of care meant to improve the utilization of palliative care amongst patients with advanced GI malignancies. We'll start off with a case and go from there. So Mr. HS is an 80-year-old male with a past medical history significant for atrial fibrillation on apixaban and congestive heart failure with an EF of 20% who presented to the emergency department after a syncopal episode. The patient was noted to be hypotensive with a heart rate of 128. His hemoglobin was 5.4, and he was transfused two units of PRBCs and responded appropriately. A head CT was normal. A CT of his abdomen and pelvis revealed gastric distension with an irregularity at the gastric antrum. His small and large bowel were normal and there was no evidence of any abdominal, retroperitoneal, or pelvic lymphadenopathy. He also had a CT of the chest, which had a few small sub-6-millimeter pulmonary nodules with no significant mediastinal lymphadenopathy. Given these findings, he underwent an EGD, which revealed coffee ground-like material throughout the esophagus, and a friable circumferential lobulated infiltrative mass with oozing in the gastric antrum and prepyloric area. The pylorus was noted to be patent, but there was evidence of gastric outlet obstruction from the mass. And pathology revealed a moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma arising in the background of chronic gastritis. The HER2 stain was negative. 
So Fabian, I know this is a broad question, but can you start talking us through a little bit about how you would approach this patient? When I see a patient like this or read about this, you know, I, I kind of, you've ever seen those movies where there are uh, all these scenarios that you start playing through and then you come back and you play through another scenario, play through another scenario. A lot of this um, is, is kind of how, what makes this interesting important, fun, somewhat dramatic um, when we go through it. And so, you know, for me, I think it starts with, you know, who is the person in front of you before you actually go into this patient? You're like, well, we have an 80 year old. Well, if you're a surgical oncologist and we look at the median overall survival of all stages for gastric cancer by age, we know that 50s do better than 60, 60 do better than 70, 70 do better than 80. And 80 year olds don't do very well overall with gastric cancer, period. It's easy. We have a relative obstruction. We have somebody that's bleeding. That's general surgery training. We want to make sure we transfuse a patient, get them feeling better. And then we start in an NG tube. We can go from there. And with that, we're also taking a very nice history. It's history somewhat becoming somewhat of a lost art, but it's important for us, especially as it pertains to palliative care. And so we want to ask, what has been this patient's course before they come and saw you? Oftentimes, these folks have, have already lost a fair amount of weight. They may or may not already have signs of cachexia. Getting some of that history uh, is going to be important for us to frame. What is this patient's performance status? The next steps are going to be multifold. Some of it is going to be uh, standard with an oncology world. We want to make sure we talk about staging this patient. You know, how are we going to manage them, right? And so what are the issues at play? With somebody gastric obstruction, we've got options. If they're able to keep some food down and um, you think their performance status is reasonable, standard of care would be to do chemotherapy. If uh, their performance status is poor, they do not want chemotherapy, um, which certainly some folks that are older or they will not tolerate or the oncologist not offer them. Now we're in a more complex situation. Talking about performance status, can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about what scale do you use? Do you use ECOG versus Karnofsky versus the palliative performance scale? I usually use the ECOG scale. I think Karnofsky is probably the second most utilized. And then the palliative performance scale is, in my experience, has been the third most utilized scale. But I think it's important, the fact that you asked that question, which I appreciate it, you have to know that these scales exist, number one. Number two, um, know what is being utilized within your microenvironment so that you're speaking the same language. Okay, thank you. Our options in this situation are they are um, not eligible for chemotherapy or their performance status is poor. We have to work through our options. With a gaps of outlet obstruction, we have um, to work closely in a multidisciplinary fashion with our gastro neurologist. And so there is an option for a stent. Uh, depending on the location, we have to know what the pros and cons are. The pros are certainly you can open things up. The cons may be migration of stents, although the stents are now covered. And so less likely migration and may block off biliary flow. And so one needs to be cognizant of that. Um, there's also an option for uh, grasco-dejunal stents. And so essentially a endoscopic bypass those work very well, and those have increasingly been utilized. Obviously, there's an option of a PEG, and if you think the patient may never uh, get to the operating room, 
depending on the uh, location. Uh, I think it's very reasonable, obviously, the patient would not be able to uh, eat in that situation unless you're able to undergo chemotherapy at some point. And then your last option is to do a surgical bypass, um, whether it be open or preferentially minimally invasively. And so those options exist. We have to then know what the the comparison between all of those are and able to frame our discussions with the patients. Fabian, do you find when you're faced with this sort of patient that you are doing your own primary palliative care so that you're taking into account the patient and their performance status and their goals of care, and then bringing the perspective of the surgical oncologist to the table? Or are you having these patients also see palliative care independently? So it's a great question. And it's important for anybody that is listening who either wants to be a surgical oncologist or then going to practice. These are questions that are actually on surgical oncology boards. For me, I am doing the former. And so I am coming at this in that I should be performing primary palliative care. And we believe that this is within the uh, bailiwick of surgical oncologists. And I need to be able and comfortable to have a goals of care conversation uh, with the patient to help frame what they should be expecting, what I should be expecting in terms of my conversation and what I offer. And um, now if one is uncomfortable, then I think the next thing is obviously calling a palliative care clinician. But I would say it's really, really important to have a conversation with your palliative care consultation. When we call a consulting doc, we often are having uh, conversations with them. And I I don't think that we do that enough a priori. Uh, In this situation, it's not like calling someone for atrial fibrillation. I think there needs to be more context and discussion with the palliative care consultant prior to them coming to see your your patient. I'd have to agree with that. I think One of the things I was somewhat surprised about when I was completing my palliative care fellowship was really how difficult it is for non-surgeons to understand all of the surgical options and to be savvy about the pros and cons and really what the natural history is of some of these procedures that we do. Like I always think of a Whipple instead of, are you going to have a complication? What complication are you going to have? You know, I think as surgeons, we've just become more comfortable with how long some of these procedures take to recover from. And so I, that's why I really do love the idea of surgeons doing their own primary palliative care when they have the time and the ability to do so. We all clearly have the ability. And as you know, and we'll say it right here, it is a skill set that has to be practiced. Where, you know, the especially palliative care comes in for me, I don't do severe acute pain on top of chronic pain. I don't do that. Um, sometimes as a symptom management, expert symptom management is what I need. And sometimes we know familial structures um, or, you know, personalities can be difficult. I may not have that expert level uh, skill set for me communication, and I want to bring someone in. And I can do that as a team, or I can ask my colleagues to do that with me framing 
what that expectation is and what that patient and our family um, relationship is. And so, you know, those are just some examples of where I would use uh, specialty palliative care over, you know, some of the baseline knowledge that I have. And I think you bring up a good point, Fabian. I think in a lot of these discussions, it's really the difference, I think, of, of, say, just doing surgical oncology or, say, really integrating palliative medicine into surgical oncology is perhaps being more goal-directed than disease-directed. So I think of like in disease-directed, we're thinking we must deal with this cancer. And sometimes really, you know, not to the benefit of the patient. Sometimes people are so sick from all their symptoms of the treatment that they have no quality of life. But then I think goal-directed approach is going to place more value on the health outcomes that the patient values most. So again, if they want to eat, then our approach may be different than I need to live for the next year because my daughter's getting married or having a baby. And, you know, both are reasonable requests that we need to consider when we're helping patients decide what treatment option is best for them. You know... I love that. And that's what people need to recognize is that is, in my opinion, the superior thought process, because it doesn't mean you are not addressing the disease necessarily, right? It is that you are centering the goals. And with that, you're also talking about the disease. So I wanted to shift focus a little bit and talk specifically about malignant bowel obstruction, which I think is something that not just surgical oncologists see, I think we see it, uh, trainees see it a lot, and certainly acute care surgeons see it a lot, particularly in the middle of the night for some reason. Amanda, do you want to just give us some background about malignant bowel obstruction? So malignant bowel obstructions occur in anywhere from 5 to 43% of patients with a diagnosis of advanced primary or metastatic intraabdominal malignancies. Um, Usually these are small bowel obstructions, and some of the most common causes are things like ovarian cancer, colorectal cancers, although some other metastatic cancers can also cause this. Things that I've seen when these have come in and we've been consulted for them are, you have to think about is the patient currently receiving treatment for this, what their nutritional status is, and their functional status, kind of like we've already talked about whether this obstruction is caused by the actual tumor itself or from like scar tissue and where the obstruction site is can kind of also affect the management or potential management. So I think just some tips, certainly that I picked up in my palliative care fellowship, but I I think that we also see in our surgical training, you know, medical management is often the first step for these patients. So we think of MPO, IV fluids, correction of electrolyte disturbances and placement of NG tube. And then some meds that I've found useful over the years. One is glycopyrrolate to reduce secretions. Two is using low doses of Haldol, like one milligram IV or sub-Q every six hours for nausea and vomiting. And then also using dexamethasone, four to eight milligrams once a day, usually dosed in the morning, to act both as an antiemetic and to help reduce the inflammatory component of the obstruction. And then also considering medication like sub-Q octreotide, specifically for a copious emesis that's resistant to other meds and also to reduce secretion. 
Fabian, I was hoping you might talk a little bit about the surgical management options for malignant bowel obstruction, particularly like, say, small bowel obstruction. You know, I think it's important, um, one, you know, a little bit about the morbidity and mortality from the surgical options, right? And so it's important to, that we have that as a foundation, understanding what that is, and we should not be taking surgery lightly. Many patients with bowel obstructions often have more than one point of obstruction and so um, and may have miliary disease and also may be uh, pretty malnutritioned between moderate and severe malnutrition for many of them and so in those situations running off to the operating room is not going to be your first choice now if you do plan on doing a an, an operation to in some instances you may be able to do a straight resection uh, if that is the case and one wants to be as limited as possible in terms of that resection, and when I say limited is certainly the extent of your laparotomy uh, and the extent of the resection of the intestine that you do. In some instances, especially if it's gastric in nature, doing a, a, a bypass um, works well. And uh, if one has the skill set to be able to do that minimally invasively, that certainly will help to decrease the morbidity and mortality. But again, understanding and get recognizing that there may be multiple points of disease, certainly in a setting with CITES, uh, that would be a, a relative contraindication. And always remember in these situations, if you find yourself in the operating room, that uh, you have a bailout of just placing a surgical G2 uh, if uh, you find that things are problematic. I think you bring up a good point to, it's always important to acknowledge to the patient and the family that this surgery is not meant to cure your disease. If you're already coming in with a malignant bowel obstruction, this, this is really more for, for symptom management than for, again, to cure the disease. And I think it's sometimes really hard for families to wrap their minds around that. And I think we need to be very upfront and very clear about the goals of the surgery. Well, I mean, it is informed consent, and it is also the, you know, I, when I, I've spoken about this before, I mean, Gretchen Sorcy talks about this idea of the surgical buy-in, and so folks think that, that you're buying in for everything on the back end. I don't think that they are, are counterintuitive. I think you can uh, inform patients and have them have a, a firm expectation of what this is that they're signing up for. Some of them may not actually sign up for it once you actually frame that for them because they think that this will just get them better, especially when you consider, again, with the morbidity, oftentimes for the, some of these patients, either they're recently on chemotherapy, they're hoping to get to chemotherapy, and if the morbidity is high, the risk of never getting to chemotherapy is not insignificant. And that, that brings up a question for me, Fabian. Once someone has surgery, how long do you tell them they need to wait before they have chemotherapy? Working with my gyne-oncology colleagues who have metrics of time to, you know, a shorter time frame for them to get patients to adjuvant chemotherapy after surgery, uh, they like to get people with it in three weeks. I've gotten more liberal in terms of my expectation for, for a laparotomy. For minimally invasive surgery, I think, you know, reasonably uh, two, three weeks is okay. Uh, for a laparotomy, it's mostly for healing of, uh, of the wound. I, I say, you know, uh, like to get folks about four to six weeks uh, time frame. Now, having said that, because if it's really time sensitive, I've had folks who are 
we're young and we want to get in chemotherapy as soon as possible. I've fudged uh, to about three weeks. I want to touch on one more thing before we end, and, and that's the concept of quote-unquote palliative surgery. And Dr. Tom Miner has written and spoken a lot about this. And so I think sometimes the idea of surgical palliative care and palliative surgery get confused. So when I think of surgical palliative care, I think of all of the things we can do for our surgical patients, which is excellent communication, goals of care, advanced care planning, symptom management. And I think of surgery, including palliative surgery, as part of that package. But Tom Miner defines palliative surgery as surgery that's largely intended for symptom relief or avoidance of symptoms and says that it's unlikely to alter the ultimate progression of disease in the patient or to significantly impact survival. And he writes that these goals need to be explicitly acknowledged in the preoperative documentation. So both spoken about to the patient and then really I think we should put that in our charting too, and says that the effectiveness of palliative surgery is based on the durability of patient-acknowledged symptom management. But I'm wondering, Fabian, as someone who's a surgical oncologist who I'm sure does a fair amount of palliative surgery, how do you deal with the whole idea of the 30-day mortality? Because we know that the morbidity and mortality of palliative surgeries is certainly higher than our um, curative surgeries? Yeah, that is very much a difficult one because that is the metric by which we go by. And the reality is in these situations, sometimes that rate is kind of expected, right? If you're going to be in these situations, certainly from a morbidity standpoint, and sometimes I feel comfortable if I'm palliating someone and I'm giving them a quality of life that may be short, but it's a higher quality of life than they were going for, I think that's a win. But in the eyes of the metrics we're following, that is a loss. Thank you, Fabian. I appreciate that input. It's interesting in sitting in the on the mortality committee of my hospital, I, I think this idea of palliative surgery, is it's really not acknowledged at all to the point where, where recently we had a, a situation where someone who went to the operating room for a palliative procedure was a do not resuscitate and chose to uphold that code status during the perioperative period, which I think was completely appropriate and was very clearly what the patient wanted and ended up dying in the operating room, which is a risk when you go for such a procedure and you're a do not resuscitate. And the comment from up high was, why was that patient a DNR? When it was clearly stated in the chart, because that's what they wanted. And, and that mm-hmm. should be more than enough, that we had a mm-hmm. good, informed discussion beforehand. Yeah, and, you know, it's important. I'm sure in those situations, hopefully in that situation, it was a, a discussion with the anesthesiologist and the surgeon. And it, certainly if there was a critical care person uh, involved, you know, so everybody's on the same page and understanding the choices of that patient. And again, I don't think that is a failure. I think we have to change the narrative around that. Amanda, you have anything to add as we're wrapping up? I guess I just have a question. I struggle the most when you just have a completely different idea of what you would value and separating yourself from this person that has had a totally different life experience and has a completely different social background and 
I think it's just hard to kind of remove yourself. It it, it, it goes both ways. Right? Yeah, there are people that make sure. decisions to move forward with care that you may believe is futile. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have to navigate that. And similarly, for some people, they move forward with care that you don't agree with. You don't think that they should be um, doing. And so this is why you need to practice having these conversations, practice being in these scenarios, because the smaller ones prepare you for the bigger ones. Right. When we're not thinking about it, when we're not being active, you know, in terms of discussing patients' wishes, that's when we get caught off guard because there's always some subtlety. And, and, and part of it is people haven't actually asked anybody anything. So when you don't, you don't actually see the nuances that may be uh, within them. And it may not require you to do much, but it does ultimately, but it does allow you to think more and understand where people are coming from. I think for me, there have been times when I start feeling I'm getting so invested and I feel like I just need to step back for a second, remind remind myself that like I'm here as a guide on this journey, but this is not my journey. This is their journey. When I, I start feeling really agitated and passionate and I'm like, I just need to step back because I, especially for us who do a lot of end of life care, I'm very... I'm very comfortable in that space. And I know and think that there's things that are a lot worse than death and that it's not always the worst outcome on any level. But that's just my own personal opinion. There are some people who just value quantity more than anything else. And why, why should I judge that? That's their life experience. So when I feel myself getting like my soul, I say my soul is getting agitated. I just step back. <laughs> and I think part of it is like Fabian was saying about practice. I think the other thing we need to leave time for is talking about these things. We need to talk about it with each other. And, you know, I check myself at the door, but I need to check in with my residents and they need to check in with me about why is this case so particularly difficult? Because, you know, maybe it's bringing up some of our own stuff and this is not about us. The reality, though, is when we're not talking about death and dying, right, this mm-hmm. is what we do. Right. We literally do this every day. There is a, you can argue there's an extra level of complexity, that, but that's mostly around our own individual hangups around this. And I'll be honest, I went through this recently. I had a patient, my father passed, and, I, and he had, you know, dementia and cancer. And, you know, we decided to go the hospice route. And then I had a patient that looked kind of like my dad and, you know, was this patriarch of a a strong patriarch of a family. And I kind of needed to separate myself from this. Mm. They did not want to do hospice. And, uh, you know, did we make the right decision for my father, you know, around this, you know, or how, what are they thinking? Or, you know, we very educated families, you know, why are we not aligned and, you know, seeing this and, but that's not my decision. That's not my journey. And I had to say this over and over to the ICU folks. And, and it, it became harder and harder because people felt like we were providing futile care and nurses were, you know, struggling with felt feeling like they were torturing people. And so it's important for us to talk, talk repeatedly Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Fabian. Good reminder. Yeah. As we're wrapping up, I'd like to thank all of you so much for listening to another Surgical Palliative Care edition of Behind the Knife. 
and I'd like to leave you all with a few thoughts. One, we want to continually reiterate that you do not need to be board certified in hospice and palliative medicine to do this good work. And certainly Fabian is an incredible example of this. Two, when managing a malignant bowel obstruction, while it is important to be familiar with both the medical and surgical treatment options, it is equally as important to frame your discussion of these options in terms of the patient's functional status, as well as in terms of their goals of care. Three, if you do end up consulting palliative care for these complex surgical oncology patients, please take the time to discuss the details of the case with your palliative care colleagues. Let them know the options that you are considering for this patient. Four, remember that palliative surgeries have higher rates of both morbidity and mortality. Take the time to discuss possible outcomes with the patient and their family and make sure that they understand that the goal of the procedure is symptom management, not cure. And lastly, be mindful of your feelings as they arise and take the time to discuss them, either with your team or with a trusted friend, coworker, or mentor. We will be back in a few months with another Surgical Palliative Care Journal Club. Until then, please feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions. Thank you again, Behind the Knife. Hope everyone has a great day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.